the horrible conclusion which had been gradually intruding itself upon my confused and reluctant mind was now an awful certainty. I was lost, completely, hopelessly lost, in the vast and labyrinthine recess of the Mammoth Cave. Turn as I might, in no direction could my straining vision seize on any object capable of serving as a guidepost to set me on the outward path. That nevermore should I behold the blessed light of day or scan the pleasant hills of dales and of the beautiful world outside. My reason could no longer entertain the slightest unbelief. Hope had departed. Yet, indoctrinated as I was by a life of philosophical study, I derived no small measure of satisfaction from my unimpassioned demeanor. For although I had frequently read of the wild frenzies into which were thrown the victims of similar situations, I experienced none of these, but stood quiet as soon as I clearly realized the loss of my bearings. Nor did the thought that I had properly wandered beyond the utmost limits of an ordinary search cause me to abandon my composure even for a moment. If I must die, I reflected, then was this terrible yet majestic cavern as welcome me, specular, as that which any churchyard might afford, a conception which carried with it more of tranquility than of despair. If I must die, I reflected, then what is this terrible yet majestic cavern as welcome as a sepulchre as that which any churchyard might afford, a conception which carried with it more of tranquility than of despair? Starving would prove my ultimate fate. Of this I was certain. Some, I knew, had gone mad under circumstances such as these, but I felt that this end would not be mine. My disaster was the result of no fault save my own, since, unknowing to the guide, I had separated myself from the regular party of sightseers, and wandering for over an hour in forbidden avenues of the cave, had found myself unable to retrace the devious windings which I had perused since forsaking my companions. Already my torch began to expire. Soon I would be enveloped by the total and almost palpable darkness of the bowels of the earth. As I stood in the waning, unsteady light, I idly wondered over the exact circumstances of my coming in. I remembered the accounts which I had heard from the colony of consumptives, who, taking their residence in this gigantic grotto to find health from the apparently salubrious air of the underground world, with its steady, uniform temperature, pure air, and peaceful quiet, had found instead death in strange and ghastly form. I had seen the sad remains of their ill-made cottages as I passed them by with the party, and had wondered what unnatural influence a long sojourn in this immense and silent cavern would exert upon one as healthy and vigorous as I. Now, I grimly told myself, my opportunity for settling this point had arrived providing that want of food should not bring me too speedy a departure from this life. As the last fitful rays of my torch faded into obscurity, I resolved to leave no stone unturned, no possible means of escape neglected. So, summoning all the powers possessed by my lungs, I set up a series of loud shoutings in the vain hope of attracting the attention of the guide by my clamor. 
And yet, as I called, I believed in my heart that my cries were to no purpose, and that my voice, magnified and reflected by the numberless ramparts of the black maze about me, fell upon no ears save my own. All at once, however, my attention was fixed with a start as I fancied that I'd heard the sound of soft, approaching steps on the rocky floor of the cavern. Was my deliverance about to be accomplished so soon? Had, then, all my horrible apprehensions been for naught, and was the guide, having marked my unwarranted absence from the party, following my course and seeking me out in this limestone labyrinth? Whilst these joyful queries arose in my brain, I was on the point of renewing my cries, in order that my discovery might come sooner, where in an instant my delight was turned to horror as I listened. For my ever-acute ear, now sharpened in an even greater degree by the complete silence of the cave, bore to my benumbed understanding the unexpected and dreadful knowledge that these footfalls were not like those of any mortal man. In the unearthly stillness of this subterranean region, the thread of the booted guide would have sounded like a series of sharp and incisive blows. These impacts were soft, stealthy, as of the paws of some feline. Besides, when I listened carefully, I seemed to trace the falls of four instead of two feet. I was now convinced that I had, by my own cries, aroused and attracted some wild beast, perhaps a mountain lion which had accidentally strayed within the cave. Perhaps, I considered, the Almighty had chosen for me a swifter and more merciful death than that of hunger. Yet the instinct of self-preservation, never wholly dormant, was stirred in my breast, and though escape from the oncoming peril might but spare me for a sterner and more lingering end. I determined, nevertheless, to part with my life at as high a price as I could command. Strange as it may seem, my mind conceived of no intent on the part of the visitor save that of hostility. Accordingly, I became very quiet, in the hope that the unknown beast would, in the absence of a guiding sound, lose its direction as I had, and thus pass me by. But this hope was not destined for realization the strange footfalls steadily advanced, the animal evidently having obtained my scent which in an atmosphere so absolutely free from all distracting influences as is that of the cave, could doubtless be followed at great distance. Seeing therefore that I must be armed for defense against an uncanny and unseen attack in the dark, I groped about me the largest of the fragments of rock which were strewn upon all parts of the floor of the cavern in the vicinity, and grasping one in each hand for immediate use, awaited with resignation the inevitable result. Meanwhile, the hideous pattering of the paws drew near. Certainly the conduct of the creature was exceedingly strange. Most of the time the threads seemed to be that of a quadruped, walking with a singular lack of unison betwixt hind and forefeet, yet at brief and infrequent intervals I fancied that but two feet were engaged on the process of locomotion. I wondered what species of animal was to confront me. It must, I thought, be some unfortunate beast who had paid for its curiosity to investigate one of the entrances of the fearful grotto with a lifelong confinement in its 
interminable recesses. It doubtless obtained as food the eyeless fish, bats, and rats of the cave, as well as some of the ordinary fish that were wafted in at every fresh head of green river, which communicates in some occult manner with the waters of the cave. I occupied my terrible vigil with grotesque conjectures of what alteration cave life might have wrought in the physical structure of the beast, remembering the awful appearances ascribed by local tradition to the consumptives who had died after long residence in the cave. Then I remembered with a start that even should I succeed in felling my antagonist, I should never behold its form, as my torch had long since been extinct, and I was entirely unprovided with matches. The tension on my brain now became frightful. My disordered fancy conjured up hideous and fearsome shapes from the sinister darkness that surrounded me, and that actually seemed to press upon my body. Nearer nearer the dreadful footfalls approached. It seemed that I must give vent to a piercing scream, yet had I been sufficiently irresolute to attempt such a thing, my voice could scarce have responded. I was petrified, rooted to the spot. I doubted if my right arm would allow me to hurl its missile at the oncoming thing when the crucial moment should arrive. Now, the steady pat-pat of the steps was close at hand, now very close. I could hear the labored breathing of an animal, and terror struck as I was. I realized that it must have come from a considerable distance, and was correspondingly fatigued. Suddenly the spell broke. My right hand guided my ever-trustworthy sense of hearing through with full force the sharp-angled bit of limestone which it contained toward that point in the darkness from which emanated the breathing and pattering, and wonderful to relate, it nearly reached its goal, for I heard the thing jump, landing a distance away where it seemed to pause. Having readjusted my aim, I discharged my second missile, this time most effectively for the flood of joy, I listened as the creature fell in what sounded like a complete collapse and evidently remained prone and unmoving. Almost overpowered by the great relief which rushed over me, I reeled back against the wall. The breathing continued in heavy, gasping inhalations and expirations, whence I realized that I had no more than wounded the creature, and now all desire to examine the thing ceased. At last, something allied to groundless, superstitious fear had entered my brain, and I did not approach the body, nor did I continue to cast stones at it in order to complete the extinction of its life. Instead, I ran full speed in what was, as nearly as I could estimate, in my frenzied condition, the direction from which it had come. Suddenly, I heard a sound, or rather, a regular succession of sounds. In another instant, they had resolved themselves into a series of sharp metallic clicks. This time, there was no doubt. It was the guide. And then I shouted, yelled, screamed, even shrieked with joy as I beheld the vaulted arches above the faint and glimmering effulgence, which I knew to be the reflected light of an approaching torch. I ran to meet the flare, and before I could completely understand what had occurred was 
lying upon the ground at the feet of the guide, embracing his boots and gibbering, despite my boasted reserve in a most meaningless and idiotic manner, pouring out my terrible story, and at the same time overwhelming my auditor with protestations of gratitude. At length I awoke to something like my normal consciousness. The guide had noted my absence upon the arrival of the party at the entrance of the cave, and had, from his own intuitive sense of direction, proceeded to make a thorough canvas of by-passengers just ahead where he had last spoken to me, locating my whereabouts after a quest of about four hours. By the time he had related this to me, I, emboldened by his torch and his company, began to reflect upon the strange beast which I had wounded, but a short distance back in the darkness, and suggested that we ascertained, by the flashlight's aid, what manner of creature was my victim. Accordingly, I retraced my steps, this time with a courage born of championship, to the scene of my terrible experience. Soon, we descried a white object upon the floor, an object wider even than the gleaming limestone itself. Cautiously advancing, we gave vent to a simultaneous ejaculation of wonderment for all of the unnatural monsters either of us had in our lifetimes beheld. This was in a surpassing degree the strangest. It appeared to be an anthropoid ape of large proportions, escaped perhaps from some itinerant menagerie. Its hair was snow-white, a thing due to, no doubt, the bleaching action of long existence within the inky confines of the cave, but it was also surprisingly thin, being indeed largely absent, save on the head, where it was of such length and abundance that it fell over the shoulders in considerable profusion. The face was turned away from us as the creature lay almost directly upon it. The inclination of the limbs was very singular, explaining, however, the alteration in their use which I had before noted, whereby the beast used sometimes all four and, on other occasions, but two for its progress. From the tips of the fingers or toes, long rat-like claws extended. The hands or feet were not the hands or feet were not prehensile, a fact that I ascribed to that long residence in the cave which as I before mentioned, seemed evident from the all-pervading and almost unearthly whiteness so characteristic of the whole anatomy. No tail seemed to be present. The respiration had now grown very feeble, and the guide had drawn his pistol with the evident intent of dispatching the creature when a sudden sound emitted by the latter caused the weapon to fall unused. The sound was of a nature difficult to describe. It was not like the normal note of any known species or simian, and I wonder if this unnatural quality were not the result of a long and continued and complete silence, broken by the sensations produced by the advent of light, a thing which the beast could not have seen since its first entrance into the cave. The sound which I might feebly attempt to classify as a kind of deep-toned chattering was faintly continued. All at once, a fleeting spasm of energy seemed to pass through the frame of the beast. The paws went through a convulsive motion, the limbs contracted. With a jerk, the white body rolled over so that its face was turned in our direction. For a moment, I was so struck with horror at the eyes thus revealed that I noted nothing else. They were black, those eyes. Deep, jetty black, in hideous contrast to the snow-white hair and flesh.
Like those of other cave denizens, these were deeply sunken into their orbits and were entirely destitute of iris. As I looked more closely, I saw that they were set in a face less prognathous than that of the average ape, and infinitely less hairy. The nose was quite distinct. As we gazed upon the uncanny sight presented to our vision, the thick lips opened and several sounds issued from them after which the thing relaxed in death. The guide clutched my coat sleeve and trembled so violently that the light shook fitfully, casting weird moving shadows on the wall. I made no motion, but stood rigidly still, my horrified eyes fixed upon the floor ahead. The fear left and wonder, awe, compassion, and reverence succeeded in its place, for the sounds uttered by the stricken figure that lay stretched out on the limestone had told us the awesome truth. The creature I had killed, the strange beast of the unfathomed cave, was, or had at one time, been a man. Okie dokie. Statement of Joel Hetman Jr. I am the most unfortunate of men. Rich, respected, fairly well educated, and of sound health. With many other advantages, usually valued by those not having them and coveted by those who have them not... I sometimes think that I should be less unhappy if they had been denied me, for then the contrast between my outer and inner life would not be continually demanding a painful attention. In the stress of privation and the need of effort, I might sometimes forget the somber secret ever baffling the conjecture that it compels. I am the only child of Joel and Julia Hetman. The one was a well-to-do country gentleman, the other a beautiful and accomplished woman to whom he was passionately attached with what I now know to have been a jealous and exacting devotion. The family home was a few miles from Nashville, Tennessee, a large, irregularly built dwelling of no particular order of architecture, a little way off the road in a park of trees and shrubbery. At the time of which I write, I was 19 years old, a student at Yale. One day I received a telegram from my father of such urgency that in compliance with its unexplained demand, I left at once for home. At the railway station in Nashville, a distant relative awaited me to appraise me of the reason for my recall. My mother had been barbarously murdered. Why and by whom, none could conjecture, but the circumstances were these. My father had gone to Nashville, intending to return the next afternoon. Something prevented his accomplishing the business in hand, so he returned on that same night, arriving just before the dawn. In his testimony before the coroner, he explained that having no latch key and not caring to disturb the sleeping servants he had, with no clearly defined intention, gone round to the rear of the house. As he turned an angle of the building, he heard a sound as a door gently closed and saw in the darkness indistinctly a figure of a man which instantly disappeared among the trees of the lawn. 
a hasty pursuit and brief search of the grounds in the belief that the trespasser was someone secretly visiting a servant providing fruitless, he entered at the unlocked door and mounted the stairs to my mother's chamber. His door was open, and snapping into black darkness, he fell headlong over some heavy object on the floor. I may spare myself the details. It was my poor mother, dead of strangulation by human hands. Nothing had been taken from the house. The servants had heard no sound, and excepting those terrible finger marks upon the dead woman's throat, dear God, that I might forget them, no trace of the assassin was ever found. I gave up my studies and remained with my father, who naturally was greatly changed. Always of a sedate, taciturn disposition, he now fell into so deep a dejection that nothing could hold his attention. Yet, anything, a football, the sudden closing of a door, aroused him in a fitful interest, one might have called it an apprehension. At any small surprise of the senses, he would start visibly and sometimes turn pale, then relapse into a melancholy apathy deeper than before. I suppose he was what is called a nervous wreck. As to me, I was younger then than now. There is much in that. Youth is gleed, in which is balm for every wound. That might again dwell in that enchanted land. Unacquainted with grief, I knew not how to appraise my bereavement. I cannot rightly estimate the strength of the stroke. One night, a few months after the dreadful event, my father and I walked home from the city. The full moon was about three hours above the eastern horizon. The entire countryside had the solemn stillness of a summer night. Our footfalls and the ceaseless songs of the katydids were... The only sound, aloof. Black shadows of bordering trees lay athwart the road, which, in the short reaches between, gleamed ghostly white. As we approached the gate to our dwelling, whose front was in shadow, and in which no light shone, my father suddenly stopped, clutched my arm, saying hardly above his breath, God, God, what is that? I... Hear nothing, I replied. But see, see, he said, pointing along the road directly ahead. I said, nothing is here. Come, father, let us go in. You're ill. He had released my arm and was standing rigid and motionless in the center of the illuminated roadway, staring like one bereft of sense. His face in the moonlight showed a pallor and fixity inexpressibly distressing. I pulled gently at his sleeve, but he had forgotten my existence. Presently, he began to retire backward, step by step, never for an instant removing his eyes from what he saw or thought he saw. I turned half round to follow, but stood irresolute. I do not recall any feeling of fear unless a sudden chill was its physical manifestation. It seemed as if an icy wind had touched my face and enfolded my body from head to foot. I could feel the stir of it in my hair. 
At that moment, my attention was drawn to a light that suddenly streamed from an upper window of the house. One of the servants, awakened by what mysterious premonition of evil who can say, and in obedience to an impulse that she was never able to name, had lit a lamp. When I turned to look for my father, he was gone, and in all the years that have passed, no whisper of his fate has come across the borderland of conjecture from the realm of the unknown. Statement of Caspar Grattan Today I'm said to live. Tomorrow, here in this room, will lie a senseless shape of clay that all too long was I. If anyone lift the cloth from the face of that unpleasant thing, it will be in gratification of a mere morbid curiosity. Some, doubtless, will go further and inquire, who was he? In this writing, I supply the only answer that I'm able to make. Caspar Grattan. Surely, that should be enough. The name has served my small need for more than twenty years of life of unknown length. True, I gave it to myself, but lacking another, I had the right. In this world, one must have a name. It prevents confusion, even when it does not establish identity. Some, though, are known by numbers, which also seem inadequate distinctions. One day, for illustration, I was passing along the street of a city far from here when I met two men in uniform, one of whom, half pausing and looking curiously into my face, said to his companion, That man looks like 767. Something in the number seemed familiar and horrible. Moved by an uncontrollable impulse, I sprang into a side street and ran until I felt exhausted in a country lane. I've never forgotten that number, and always it comes to memory, attended by gibbering obscenity, peals of joyless laughter, the clang of iron doors. So I say a name, even if self-bestowed, is better than a number. In the register of the potter's field, I shall soon have both. What wealth! Of him who shall find this paper, I must beg a little consideration. It is not the history of my life, the knowledge to write that is denied me. This is only a record of broken and apparently unrelated memories, some of them as distinct and sequent as brilliant beads upon a thread, others remote and strange, having the character of crimson dreams with interspaces blank and black, witch fires glowing still in red and great desolation. Standing upon the shore of eternity, I turned for a last look landward over the course by which I came. There are twenty years of footprints fairly distinct in the impressions of bleeding feet. They lead through poverty and pain, devious and unsure, as of one staggering beneath a burden. Remote, unfriended, melancholy, slow. Ah, the poet's prophecy of me. How admirable. How dreadfully admirable. Backward, beyond the beginning of this Via Dolorosa, this epic suffering with episodes of sin, I see nothing clearly. It comes out of a cloud. I know that it spans only twenty years, yet I'm an old man. One does not remember one's birth. One has to be told. But with me it was different. Life came to me full-handed and dowered me with all my faculties and powers. Of a previous existence, I know no more than others, for 
all have stammering intimations that may be memories and may be dreams. I know only that my first consciousness was of maturity in body and mind, a consciousness accepted without surprise or conjecture. I merely found myself walking in a forest, half-clad, footsore, unutterably weary and hungry. Seeing a farmhouse, I approached and asked for food, which was given to me by the one who inquired my name. I did not know, yet knew that all had names. Greatly embarrassed, I retreated, and night coming on, lay down in the forest and slept. The next day I entered a large town which I shall not name, nor shall I recur further incidents of the life that is now to end, a life of wandering, always and everywhere, haunted by an overmastering sense of crime and punishment, of wrong, of terror and punishment of crime. Let me see if I can reduce it to narrative. I seem once to have lived near a great city, a prosperous planter, married to a woman who I loved and distrusted. We had, it sometimes seems, one child, a youth of brilliant parts and promise. He is at all times a vague figure, never clearly drawn, frequently altogether out of the picture. One luckless evening it occurred to me to test my wife's fidelity in a vulgar, commonplace way, familiar to everyone who has acquaintance with the literature of fact and fiction. I went to the city, telling my wife that I should be absent until the following afternoon. But I returned before daybreak and went to the rear of the house, proposing to enter by a door with which I had secretly so tampered that it would seem locked yet not actually fastened. As I approached it, I heard it gently open and close, and saw a man steal away into the darkness. With murder in my heart, I sprang after him, but he had vanished without even the bad luck of identification. Sometimes now I cannot even persuade myself that it was a human being. Crazed with jealousy and rage, blind and bestial with all the elemental passions of insulted manhood, I entered the house and sprang up the stairs to the door of my wife's chamber. It was closed, but having tampered with its lock also, I easily entered, and despite the black darkness, soon stood by the side of her bed. My groping hands told me that although disarranged, it was unoccupied. She's below, I thought, and terrified by my entrance, has evaded me in the darkness of the hall. With the purpose of seeking her, I turned to leave the room, but took a wrong direction, the right one. My foot struck her, cowering in a corner of the room. Instantly, my hands were at her throat, stifling a shriek. My knees were upon her struggling body. And there, in the darkness, without a word of accusation or reproach, I strangled her till she died. There ends the dream. I have related in the past tense, but the present would be the fitter form, for again and again the somber tragedy reenacts itself in my consciousness. Over and over I lay the plan, I suffer the confirmation, I redress the wrong. And then all is blank, and afterward the rain beats against the grimy window panes, or the snow falls upon my scant attire, the wheels rattle in the squalid streets where my life lies in poverty and mean employment. If there ever is sunshine, I do not recall it. 
If there are birds, they do not sing. There is another dream, another vision of the night. I stand among the shadows on a moonlit road. I'm aware of another presence, but whose I cannot rightly determine. In the shadow of a great dwelling, I catch the gleam of white garments. Then the figure of a woman confronts me in the road. My murdered wife. There is death in the face. There are marks upon the throat. The eyes are fixed on mine with an infinite gravity which I cannot reproach, nor hate, nor menace, nor anything less terrible than recognition. Before this awful apparition, I retreat in terror, a terror that is upon me as I write. I can no longer rightly shape the words. See, they... Now I'm calm. But truly, there is no more to tell. The incident ends where it began. In darkness and in doubt. Yes, I am again in control of myself. The captain of my soul. But that is not respite. It is another stage and phase of expiation. My penance, constant in degree, is mutable in kind. One of its variants is tranquility. After all, it is only a life sentence. To hell for life. As a foolish penalty. The culprit chooses the duration of his punishment. Today my term expires. To each and all, the peace that was not mine. Statement of the late Julia Hetman through the medium Bayrolls. I had retired early and fallen almost immediately into a peaceful sleep from which I awoke with that indefinable sense of peril which is, I think, a common experience in that other earlier life. Of its unmeaning character, too, I was entirely persuaded, yet that did not banish it. My husband, Joel, was away from home. The servants slept in another part of the house, but these were familiar conditions. They had never before distressed me. Nevertheless, the strange terror grew so insupportable that, conquering my reluctance to move, I sat up and lit the lamp at my bedside. Contrary to my expectation, this gave me no relief. The light seemed rather an added danger, for I reflected that it would shine out under the door, disclosing under my presence to whatever evil thing might lurk outside. You that are still in the flesh, subject to horrors of the imagination, think what a monstrous fear that must be which speaks in darkness, security from malevolent existences of the night. That is to spring to close quarters with an unseen enemy, the strategy of despair. Extinguishing the lamp, I pulled the bent clothing about my head and lay trembling and silent, unable to shriek, forgetful to pray. In this pitiable state, I must have lain for what you call hours. Well, thus there are no hours. There is no time. At last it came. A soft, irregular sound of footfalls on the stairs. They were slow, hesitant, uncertain, as of something that did not see its way. To my disordered reason, all the more terrifying for that is the approach of some blind and mindless malevolence to which is no appeal. 
I even thought that I must have left the hall lamp burning, and the groping of this creature proved it a monster of the night. This was foolish and inconsistent with my previous dread of the light, but what would you have? Fear has no brains, it is an idiot. The dismal witness that it bears and the cowardly counsel that it whispers are unrelated. We know this well. We who have passed into the realm of terror, who skulk in eternal dusk among the scenes of our former lives, invisible even to ourselves and one another, yet hiding forlorn and lonely places, yearning for speech with our loved ones, yet dumb and as fearful of them as they of us. Sometimes the disability is removed, the law suspended. By the deathless power of love or hate, we break the spell. We are seen by those whom we would warn, console, or punish. What form we seem to bear, we know not. We know only that we terrify even those whom we most wish to comfort and from whom we most crave tenderness and sympathy. Forgive, I pray you, this inconsequent digression by what was once a woman. You who consult us in this imperfect way, you do not understand. You ask foolish questions about things unknown and things forbidden. Much that we know and could impart in our speech is meaningless in yours. We must communicate with you through a stammering intelligence and that small fraction of our language that you yourselves can speak. You think that we are of another world? No. We have knowledge of no world but yours. Though for us it holds no sunlight, no warmth, no music, no laughter, no song of birds, nor any companionship. Oh God, what a thing it is to be a ghost, cowering and shivering in an altered world, a prey to apprehension and despair. No, I did not die of fright. The thing turned and went away. I heard it go down the stairs, hurriedly, I thought, as if itself in sudden fear. Then I rose to call for help. Hardly had my shaking hand found the doorknob when, merciful heaven, I heard it returning. Its footfalls as it remounted the stairs were rapid, heavy, and loud. They shook the house. I fled to an angle of the wall and crouched upon the floor. I tried to pray. I tried to call out the name of my dear husband, and then I heard the door thrown open. There was an interval of unconsciousness. And when I revived, I felt a strangling clutch upon my throat. I felt my arms feebly beating against something that bore me backward, felt my tongue thrusting itself from between my teeth, and then I passed into this life. No, I have no knowledge of what it was. The sum of what we knew at death is the measure of what we know afterward of all that went before. Of this existence we know many things, but no new light falls upon any page of that. In memory is written all of that we can read. Here are no heights of truth overlooking the confused landscape of that dubitable domain. We still dwell in the valley of the shadow, lurk in its desolate places, peering from brambles and thickets at its mad, malign inhabitants. How should we have new knowledge of that fading past? What am I about to relate happened on a night 
We know when it is night, for then you retire to your houses, and we can venture from our places of concealment to move unafraid about our old homes, to look at the windows, even to enter and gaze upon your faces as you sleep. I had lingered long near the dwelling where I had been so cruelly changed to what I am, as we do while any that we love or hate remain. Vainly, I had sought some method of manifestation, some way to make my continued existence and my great love and poignant pity understood by my husband and son. Always, if they slept, they would wake, or if in my desperation I dared approach them when they were awake, would turn toward me the terrible eyes of the living, frightened me by the glances that I sought from the purpose that had held. On this night... I had searched with them without success, fearing to find them. They were nowhere in the house, nor about the moonlit dawn. For although the sun is lost to us forever, the moon, full orbed or slender, remains to us. Sometimes it shines by night, sometimes by day, but always it rises and sets, as in that other life. I left the lawn and moved into the white light, in silence along the road, aimless and sorrowing. Suddenly I heard the voice of my poor husband in exclamations of astonishment with that of my son in reassurance and dissuasion. And there by the shadow of a group of trees they stood, near, so near. Their faces were toward me, the eyes of the elder man fixed upon mine. He saw me. At last, at last he saw me. In the consciousness of that, my terror fled as a cruel dream. The death spell was broken. Love had conquered. Law. Mad with exultion, I shouted. I I must have shouted. He sees. He sees. He will understand. And controlling myself, I moved forward smiling and consciously beautiful to offer myself to his arms, to comfort him with endearments and with my son's hand in mind speak a word that should restore the broken bonds between the living and the dead. Alas, alas, his face went white with fear. His eyes were as those of a hunted animal. He backed away from me as I advanced, and at last turned and fled into the wood. Whither it is not given to me to know. To my poor boy, left outly desolate, I've never been able to impart a sense of my presence. Soon he too must pass to this life invisible and be lost to me forever. <laughs>